So let's turn to our handouts and our Bibles to Acts chapter 23, technically starting in the end of 22, which I have on the handout for you, to kind of get you up to speed. Paul has made his journey to Jerusalem and was pretty much attacked in the temple square by opponents to the point that the Romans came down with approximately 200 soldiers to save his life and squire him away. And then in verse 24 of chapter 22, the Roman tribune, or the, let's just call him the the guy in charge, he oversaw 1,000 troops. He was going to examine Paul by flogging him. That's one way to get an answer if you're trying to figure out why is everybody upset with you. So go to the guy who's being beaten up and then beat him up some more so he'll tell the truth. What a great system of justice they had. Um, But then, as Paul was being strapped up and stretched out, he kind of said quick, quietly, isn't it against the law to uh, flog a Roman citizen? <laughs> the truth is like, oh my gosh, uh, my neck is on the line. <clears throat> so pulled him down, and then you have verse twenty, verse thirty of chapter twenty-two. <clears throat> on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And the tribune brought Paul down from the fortress and set him before them. And that's where we open our scene. Uh, I guess this would be episode six of the uh, Persecution of Paul movie series, which has not been yet made, but is in our minds because this is very dramatic and very detailed. That's what makes this so interesting. It's as if you have a script writer is trying to paint the picture in our heads so we can view what's going on. You don't get that all the time, but this one, it's almost as if Luke, under the inspiration of Scripture, slowed everything down. So let's start in chapter 23. We are going to try to get as far as I can in chapter 23 as time allows, and my rabbit trails keep us on track. Notice how it starts. And looking intently at the council. Talk about a dramatic description of Paul's visage. He was looking intently. That is a Greek word, attenzio. Sounds like the word attention. It's the same word used in Luke 2256, where the servant girl is looking intently at Peter in the courtyard and then says, I recognize you. So there's this intensity and fixed attention of Paul on the vast array of the council that's surrounding, surrounding him. Now, what is the council? What's another word for the council in case you want to dredge up your, uh, your Jewish uh, history and understanding? 
Any, any idea? Starts with an S. Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. How many are in the Sanhedrin? Approximately 70. 70. You know, my guess is that, you know, they pull out the call and do all 70 show up for the vote, kind of like the United States Senate. Um, they pull out the call and those that can come, come. Because they were commanded that morning. It's not like this was on everyone's outlook calendar. They didn't know this was happening, so they're trying to pull them all in, as many as they can. And this Sanhedrin have met 70 rabbis, and Paul starts with the word brothers. Now you might, normally, I, I, I'm all my life I've read right past that word. And still I, until I start digging in here. That's a very familial phrase. That puts Paul on the same level as the council, which is an offense to everyone sitting in that room. And the council isn't in rows like an amphitheater or like in our church. They're in a semicircle. So you have the person on the dock in the front in front of the council, the one who's presenting to the council, and the council can all see each other. And you can kind of picture this um, amphitheater look to the room. And he says, brothers. Well, William Barclay actually suggested this familiarity was an affront because the normal phraseology to address the council would be ruler of the people and elders of Israel. Instead, he says to them, hey, dudes, I mean, that's really casual. I don't want to make too much of it, but could it be that he started off with something that they were already predisposed to hate him? They had already prejudged him. And instead, you come into this situation and there's this, whoa. But Paul leads off by saying, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He is declaring his innocence, his um, holy life in front of the group. Steve? Yes? Just a quick question. When he yeah. starts off with the same brothers, could it be that he was basically saying, I was, I used to be like you sure. when I was a, a Pharisee? Correct. But he was not on the council. But, right. And so there's that idea he may have been part of the religious group, but he worked for them before. He was an employee, the hired assassin, if you want to call it, the hired, hired prosecutor but he never sat on the Sanhedrin as far as we know. I mean, it's possible, but yeah. as far as we know, he was never part of the group. But, yeah. But don't we have, like he said, I was surpassing all my peers. I mean, surely he was an up-and-coming person that they all knew. Yeah, there was no question. I mean, yeah. when he says he's looking intently, he's looking at all the faces he knows yeah. in the crowd and seeing if they look back at him. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In verse 2, 
we're really you know, moving along quickly here. We're on verse 2. <clears throat> and the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. Why would he do that? If it weren't for him starting with the word brothers. There was already an offense and he basically has already said, oh, bam, just knock this guy down, put, bring him down a rung. Um, that's a pretty intense opening in any sort of communication. <laughs> Hi, Carl. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't know we were friends. I mean, seriously, this is the first reaction from the high priest. So, in one of my rabbit trails, I decided to dig into who is this Ananias? Now on page two of your handout, I have a wonderful little chart that shows all, well not all, but the most well-known high priests of the New Testament era. And you can see them. It starts with Annas. Annas was the high priest in the very early days of Jesus' life. His son-in-law was Caiaphas. So back in that early part, you had a uh, basically a family mafia, for lack of a better word. You know, they were all the same blood, and they pretty much had brothers and you know uncles and whatnot would run the thing. And Caiaphas, we know, was the one who was um, in charge during Jesus' trial, etc. Then we have a gap, which there was apparently a whole sequence of high priests. But then in 47 AD, Ananias, the son of Nebedius, was named the high priest by Herod Agrippa II. Now, we have to make sure you don't confuse this Ananias with the other Ananiases of the New Testament, or even of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, there was Ananias who was married to Sapphira. Sapphira. Not the same guy. Okay, well, we all know that story. He's dead. I mean, he basically lied about uh, his tithe, and uh, it was a rather, uh, let's just say, uh, flagrant example for everyone else. Don't do that both Ananias and Sapphira. Then you have the Ananias in Acts chapter 9 who helped Paul heal after the incident on the road to Damascus. He was the one who was sitting in the window praying and God comes to him and said, there's this guy you need to take care of. him." was like, are you sure? Isn't he the bad guy? And we have that whole story. This is not that Ananias. This is a different Ananias. So obviously, Ananias is not an uncommon name. You just need to make sure that you know who is who. This Ananias was a Sadducee. And by this point in Jewish political history, the high priests were no longer passed down from father to son or to uncle or to son-in-law. That, had been, that chain had been broken. 
He was appointed by Rome via Herod Agrippa, who was in charge at the time, in 47 AD. Five years later, this is all according to Josephus. Ananias actually has a nice little section about him in the history of the Jewish wars by Josephus. So we have historical record of this fellow. In 52 AD, both Herod Agrippa and Ananias were summoned to Rome to answer for, quote, a charge of cruelty made against him by the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were an unloved people group, but apparently he had been unusually cruel. There's even another story, and I don't know where it fits in the timeline, but that Ananias had caused his servants to go into synagogues and take the food that had been presented to the priests for himself. And a couple of those priests died of starvation. This guy was just, he was such a holy man. <laughs> no, not at all. He was a political appointee and was cruel in so many different ways. Well, he goes before Caesar the charges are, are brought up before Claudius Caesar and he was acquitted and sent back home. But with the caveat that he could no longer hold the title as high priest officially. Now isn't that interesting? So even in my chart it's technically incorrect because there's a gap of time in which Ananias was not the high priest. That high priest was called Jonathan. Jonathan, however, stood up against Felix. Felix is now the procurator of the era, replacing Herod Agrippa. I hope you're all following this, and I don't want to take the time to write it all up on the board. But you had, on the Roman side, you had Herod Agrippa to Felix to Festus in our time frame. Okay, Herod Agrippa's gone. Ananias comes in, his title is taken away, Felix appoints, I'm sorry, before Herod Agrippa died, he appointed Jonathan as the replacement. Jonathan stood up against Felix and was very loud in his complaint. So again, according to Josephus, Felix conspired to assassinate the high priest. No, that's not in the New Testament. But when we were talking about when Paul was arrested, remember what the tribune thought? Who he, who Paul, who he thought Paul was? Remember? Thought he was the terrorist, the Egyptian, who had risen up with 400, at least 400 people and tried to storm the city. Among those who stormed the city were then the, some called Sicaros, which were known as assassins. They would hold their weapons under their cloaks, move among the people in the temple area, and stab people that they didn't like. Well, Felix hired them, and they killed the high priest Jonathan in the temple square and they blamed it 
on that Egyptian uprising. So when the Roman leader captures some guy where there's all this hullabaloo going on, he's going, that's the guy. That's why they're all upset at him. Because he's the leader of the ones who killed their high priest. I got him. I'm going to get the reward money. No. It turns out that that isn't who Paul was at all. But this is what's going on in the background behind all of this. And Ananias is then put back in place by Felix. Whether he is official or not is up for debate. There's no indication, there's no record that he was officially made high priest. But you cannot imagine a time in Jewish history where they didn't have one. Because on the high holy days, they had to have a high priest go into the holy of holies. They had to have someone. So is that who this Ananias is? Possibly. Possibly. So fast forward in history. In 59 AD, that's why you see on the chart, Ananias is the high priest until 59 AD, about four years after this incident. Um, Festus becomes the procurator. He doesn't like Ananias, and so he appoints his own high priest named Ishmael. But Ananias was still alive. He was still known as a collaborator with Rome, well known for his collaboration. The fact that he dodged charges under Caesar Claudius says something right there. He's a political appointee. He can get away with anything. He can mistreat the people. He can steal their money, mistreat anyone he wants, and get away with it. So seven years later, in 66 AD, when the Jewish uprising occurred, which is the first year of the Jewish war, which ended in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. One of the first things the revolutionaries did is they hunted down Ananias and killed him along with his brother Hezekiah. That's how reviled he was. So we have a high priest presiding over this council Back in verse 2, like I say, we're really rolling along here. We're still in verse 2. You have this high council where Paul's standing in front of them all, and here's Ananias with all of this background and this history. He's not a religious man. Yes, he's religious. I mean, he is part of the San Sanhedrin. He is a Sadducee. He's had training but he's not there to be a priest. He's there because he has political power. And he wants no one who can assail his political power or position. And he knows that Paul could make a mess of things. So he tries to shut him up before he ever talks. So, high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, we're in verse 2, to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Was Paul mad? <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. <clears throat> and I'll get back to this in a second. But verse 4 and 5, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I, I didn't know, brothers. I didn't know that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now let's stop there and draw the, the picture. Put the picture in your mind. Create the scene. Paul starts to talk and bam, he is slapped down. And he stands up and goes, you dare to strike me, you whitewashed wall? Now, there's a lot of theories out there. Did Paul know that he that Ananias was the high priest? Maybe not. Because he says, I didn't know. So was Paul lying? Or was it a satirical? I didn't think someone like you could be high priest. Well, that isn't what the words say, so let's not add words to the scripture just for the sake of drama. Here's another theory which I thought, oh, that's interesting. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. What is one of the theories of what his thorn of the flesh was? Bad eyesight. So he's peering intently at the group, and they're a big blur. There's the question, was Ananias wearing the robes of high priest? that indicated his position? Or was he roused in the morning by a knock on the door saying, the council is in emergency session. Come on in, get down here. And he goes in his pajamas. We don't know. So here's the other thing. They weren't Facebook friends. He wouldn't know what Ananias looked like. He hadn't been in Jerusalem for about a decade. And when he was there the last time, he didn't meet with the Sanhedrin. He met with James and Peter and John, and they were having their conversations, and then he took off on his missionary journeys. It could be he had not been in Jerusalem in any capacity for years. Yeah. And to your point, uh, when you show us the chart after Caiaphas, you said there were various... There was 10 years of people, yeah. And so it could have been one of many, so how do you know players without a program? Right, unless somebody said, you know, the high priest, you're going to be addressing Ananias. Okay, well, that's not not in the text either. So there's all this wonderful, you know, people get doctorates for this kind of exploration. (laughs) I mean, I I start digging in, it's like, holy smoke, you wrote 400 pages on this idea. Wow, good for you. Uh, I'm not going to read it, I'm going to just simply go, I'm admirable. Um, He calls him a whitewashed wall. Well, you have to go all the way back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 10 and verse 14. When the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. 
I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you will know that I am the Lord. The idea of a whitewash was very common to make something look clean. They would just throw up the the whitewash on it so that it would cover the dirt and uh, it would look clean on the outside, but was dirty on the inside. In other words, Paul's declaring this high priest as a hypocrite in front of the council. (laughs) And then it says, how can you judge me when it's contrary to the law that you order me to be struck? There's not a specific law that we can find in the Old Testament along these lines. There may have been a societal law, but Deuteronomy 25, 1 and 2 pretty much says that only the guilty one can be beaten. They haven't even had the trial yet. So he's innocent until declared guilty. Also, Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And he's pretty much saying, you can't start a conversation by hitting me in the face. That's just not how the law works. But then they say, but how can you revile the high priest? And he says, I'm sorry. For all intents and purposes, this language here is, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And then he quotes Exodus 22.7, which says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It's always interesting how the scripture is, is actually rather clear that we should not speak ill of our rulers because God is the one who put them in place. And we kind of break that every day. We speak ill of our rulers because we can. We have the freedom of speech. And yet, you honor the office, not necessarily the one who holds it. It's an important principle. Paul did not mean to denigrate the individual He didn't know who it was. So, you know, there's times where you say, oh, Paul was sinless. No, actually he wasn't. Right here. So Paul looks around the room, starting in verse 6, and he perceives, oh, can't go, I'm sorry, I have to go, I have to quote uh, something before I go on about Ananias. This is a great quote from the preacher Joseph Parker. And it's a good principle, I think, for us to to remember as well. The man presiding over the council was the embodiment of every crime that could defile personal character and debase official dignity. His portrait is painted by Josephus as one mass of darkness, and no later historian ventured to add one touch of light to the infinite density of that darkness. Hearing a man claim good conscience, Ananias was reminded of his own evil career. 
And we often seek to make ourselves virtuous by punishing what we believe to be or apparently concede to be the claim of any other person of good standing and spotless reputation. Ananias commanded them that stood by small Paul to smite him on the mouth. And it's the only thing a bad man can do. He has no other shot in his locker. He can only strike, abuse, defame, and cause the innocent to suffer. It is the least power. It is not power. It is the weakness of fury and the fury of weakness. And I think of just, again, our culture. Yeah, we tend to denigrate those we disagree with, but it comes the other direction, too. And there's this struggle for power in our society of truth. And it feels like this constant battle, even more so than... It, it, it just It's just different. I don't know how else to describe it. But here you have the weak, and all they can do is shout and get angry and lash out because they have no other power other than to try to put someone down by violence. All right. So now Paul perceives that one part of the room were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. All right. So at the risk of uh, repeating myself or telling you something you already know, but at the same time, it's important to rehearse the details of Scripture so that we can be we have the same definitions in front of us. The differences between a Sadducee and a Pharisee were dramatic. It's not Republican and Democrat, although you could almost look at it that way. These were theological differences. Extreme differences. The Sadducees, and I'm just going to quote from a Bible dictionary, the Sadducees were the aristocrats of the time. They were the party of the rich and the high priest families. They were in charge of the temple and its services, and they claimed to be descendants of Zadok, the high priest at the time of Solomon. <coughs> However, the true derivation of their name is unknown. We don't know where the word Sadducee comes from. And in all our literature, they stand opposed to the Pharisees. They sought to conserve the beliefs and practices of the past. They opposed the oral law, accepting the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the ultimate authority. That's the, the Pharisees did. The Sadducees were materialistic in their outlook. They did not believe in life after death or any reward or punishment beyond this life. And they denied the existence of angels and demons and did not believe that God was concerned with what people did, rather that people were totally free. They were politically oriented, supporters of ruling powers, whether the Seleucids, the Greeks, or the Romans, and wanted nothing to threaten their position and wealth. So, they also opposed Jesus. Isn't that interesting? As one put it, one way to think of them and to remember them is they were sad, you see. <laughs> Come on. That's funny. <laughs> they were Sadducees. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, the Pharisees constituted the most important group. They appear in the Gospels as the opponents of Jesus. Paul claimed to be a Pharisee before he was a Christian. In Philippians 3.5. They were the most numerous. They had more votes. But Josephus stated that they numbered only about 6,000 in total, which is a fascinating number. They controlled the synagogues. The Sadducees controlled the temple. So the Pharisees were the ones out in the highways and byways, basically controlling the people. But the Sadducees controlled the temple and its services and thereby the government. You see the difference? It's an important difference politically. <clears throat> but no surviving writing gives us information about the origin of the Pharisees. We don't really know where they came from other than they started to show up around the time of the Maccabees, specifically around the time of John Hyrcanus in around 120 BC. The name Pharisee means separated one. It could mean they separated themselves from the masses of the people or that they separated themselves to the study and the interpretation of the law. They are usually assumed to be the spiritual descendants of the Hasidim or the Hasidim, the loyal fighters for religious freedom at the time of the Maccabees. They appear to be responsible for the transformation of Jerusalem from a religion of sacrifice to a religion of law. That's another important difference. Because you, you think about it, were there Pharisees in the Old Testament? No. Were there Sadducees in the Old Testament? No. Both of them came up out of the attempt to refashion Jewish rule under the Maccabees. And Things changed in that time, which when you think about it, Galatians says that Jesus came in the time had fully come. This was all part of that timing. Uh, let's see. They were the developers of the oral tradition, the teachers of a twofold law, oral and written. They saw that the way to God was through obedience to the, the law. They were the progressives of the day strongly monotheistic, accepted the Old Testament authority, affirmed the reality of angels and demons, and believed in life beyond the grave and the resurrection of the body. Yes, I see, they were fair. They were fair, I see. I worked on that. Thank you for laughing, the three of you. Um, anyway. So Paul, knowing that the room is mixed, he shouts out, brothers, third time he's called them brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, and it is respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now they have not declared what he's guilty of. He just throws it out there into the room. He threw it out like a hand grenade. And when he said this, a dissension arose. Get to my correct page here, page two. 
a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the, the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, and the Pharisees acknowledged them all, and they all started yelling. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but a normal, you know, this is supposed to be about Paul. And instead, it turned into a theological shouting debate, as if they had never had this shouting debate before. You can almost picture that there have been times where you know, two or three would be in a corner and they'd start getting really energized and trying to talk the other one into their position. But you're Sadducee, you're Pharisee. Now here's an interesting question. We have examples of Pharisees, not just Paul, who became Christians in the New Testament. Can you name one of the other ones, the famous one? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. There are possibilities, or many others. Can you name a Sadducee? No. They were so adamant that there's no resurrection that they weren't even receptive to the idea. So when you talk, start talking to them about Jesus raising from the dead, well, there's no such thing. You couldn't get past that. Now, there, there may be examples. We just don't have any of them in the New Testament or in other writings. It's also interesting to note, this is a side note, and I, I've been digging a little into this a little bit. Tom knows that I've been digging into this a little bit because when the temple was destroyed, you don't hear about Sadducees ever again. These disappeared off the landscape. Well, for one thing, they had no political position. There was no political power. Rome just was tired of the whole Jewish people and slapped them down, killed thousands of them, shut down their temple. Now, the Sadducees didn't even have a temple to rule over. And for all we know, they just frittered away. I haven't dug too far into this, but it's fascinating. And the Pharisees kind of just went away. From all we can tell, you really don't have much history past the time of 70 AD to when the early church really began to um, form in such a way that we have writings about it around the turn of the century, about 100 AD. So what happened? I mean, the loss of the temple really changed things for the Jewish people. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail. Yes. I, I think that this, it seems that this is a really um, brilliant thing of Paul's to start out with the brothers because it seems like he had noticed some of his people, the Pharisees, mm -hmm. and, and said brothers and made connection, which made the Sadducees already mad at the very beginning. But that kind of drew him in so that when he made the statement, they're persecuting me. They said, yeah, he's one of us, and right. you guys are persecuting because he's one of us. Right. So, I mean, I don't know if he walked in and had that in his mind, but he definitely made We don't know. There's, there's a lot of questions about yeah. what was Paul's purpose in creating foment in the, in the room at the time. You had a thought. Well, I was just thinking about the, um, the drive uh, prior to the uh, destruction of Rome or the, uh, 
the preservation of the scrolls and right. the law in the caves and who would have uh, you know led the led the project to make sure they were hidden and it probably would have been the pharisees the pharisees most likely because the sadducees wouldn't have cared so even though they were in charge of the temple where all the scrolls were right the Pharisees would have probably been the leaders of preserving because their whole idea was conserving the oral and the written law. And they were the ones who pretty much kept the law and made it a big deal. That's why we talk about if you're, if you're going to be a rule maker, you're a Pharisee. Kind of even in our own terms. We don't say anything about Sadducees in our, even in our colloquial language. So they, they still had access to the scrolls, Put it this way, when, when Rome was knocking on the door, they, they probably heard the knock and said, let's, let's do what we can and preserve what we can. Uh, because Rome was, they put Jerusalem under siege, but obviously in the months prior, they had been getting away as much as they could. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a good point. So anyway, a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. Well, now they're declaring him innocent. Ananias is over here having him slapped in the face as guilty and it total chaos. And then one of them says, but what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now they're making it theological that maybe he's inspired by God. Hmm, Paul's thinking, exactly. Um, and when the dissension became violent, wait, what? Did they start spilling out of their seats, rushing toward Paul? The tribune who's there watching this because he wants to find out what's the truth. Because the last time he asked the group, they all started saying and clamoring and shouting and he's going, oh, get, it, get him out of here. So this is the third time the Tribune has had to save Paul's life. David Jeremiah described Paul as the wishbone after a Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> Which I thought was rather vivid. Because you can imagine, they're pulling at him maybe. Maybe they're trying to grasp his cloak. And someone gets a hold of him and starts tugging. And someone on the other starts tugging. He is in charge of a thousand troops. So of the fortress Antonio, so Antonia, and so he is the guy. He's the one that's been watching all of this the whole time. Yeah. So the Tribune is afraid that Paul is going to be torn to pieces. So he commands the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force. You can almost hear the siren. Uh, 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 uh. Red alert, red alert, get that guy again. Let's save him and bring him back to the barracks. And you can almost imagine this tribute going, I'm so tired of these people. And I'm tired of this guy. Who is this guy? And why is he such a lightning rod? I don't get it. Well, he's not Jewish. Would the discussion between the Pharisees and Sadducees probably be in the Hebrew or Aramaic? Well, which he wouldn't—he wouldn't know the answer. What they're saying—that's a good point. They're shouting in gibberish, as far as he's concerned. All he sees is the violence happening. 
And you, you can almost see some guy pulling out his iPhone, flipping into the scrolls. No, no. He's pulling out the scrolls and saying, in Isaiah, it says this. And the other going, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. And there's going all this cacophony in this room. But then comes a very interesting, poignant moment in the book of Acts, verse 11. This is startling, actually. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus comes to him in the night to give him courage and hope and comfort. And you might think, well, what's Paul worried about? He almost was a wishbone. You know, yeah, his whole life has been one of violence and been one of uh, persecution and argument. But he's so desperately wants to save the people. He wants the message known. Remember the first time he was arrested, he asked the tribute, can I go back out on the steps and address the people? And it was fine until he brought up the resurrection and then the place went chaotic again. He wants to save the people of Israel. That's why he went to Jerusalem. And yet, He's not being given a forum. He's being shut down at every opportunity. This is all happening very quickly. But Jesus comes to him and says, take courage. This is not the first time this has happened since the road to Damascus. Back in Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth. And there was... Um, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. And many people in Corinth, this is uh, 18 verse 8, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. We have this picture in our minds, I think, of Paul as this stalwart fellow where nothing could assail him and he never had any doubts and never was never depressed and never discouraged. Jesus knows. Jesus comes to him. An author by the name of Guzik said it this way. When John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was in jail, a man visited him and said, Friend, the Lord sent me to you. I have been looking in half the prisons in England for you. And John Bunyan replied, I don't think the Lord sent you to me, because if he had, you would have come here first. God knows where I've been for years. <laughs> and then Guzik puts it this way, God knows where you are today. Even if you're hiding it from everyone else, God knows where you are. Paul was alone, but he wasn't alone. If everyone else forsook him, Jesus was enough. Better to be in jail with the Lord than to be anywhere without him. 
Paul had been miraculously delivered from jail cells before, but this time the Lord met him in the jail cell. We often demand that Jesus deliver us out of our circumstances when he wants to meet us in them. We sometimes think we're surrendering to Jesus when we're really only demanding an escape. God wants to meet us in whatever we face at the moment. And that is a very poignant statement. Paul, he's not in jail necessarily, but he's under house arrest. He's got people pulling on him. He still has the bruises from the other day when he was beaten in the, in, the, in the temple at Square. And God comes to him and meets him in his point of need. And Paul didn't pray, Lord, deliver me. He just said, thank you, Lord, for being with me. So if you're attacked for your faith, read verse 11. Take courage. You've been true to the facts on this day, I'm going to take you somewhere else and it'll happen again. If you're reviled for pointing out sin, look at verse eight, chapter 18, verse 9. Take courage, do not be afraid, and do not be silent, for Jesus is with you. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath they needed to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Okay. Now this gets interesting, like it wasn't interesting before. Which Jews is this? Hmm? Which Jews are these? Is this the Sadducees or the Pharisees? We don't know. It just simply says the Jews. It could have been any of them. It could have been the ones in the town square, the ones from Ephesus who were trying to kill him before. We don't know. But some Jews, whoever they were, and there are more than 40 of them. I mean, this is not a small group. I mean, take this room, double it, make us all burly men who have violence on our hearts, and we're, we have all vowed together that we will not eat or sleep or drink. We will not stop until we have killed Paul. And what do they do? They go to the chief priests and elders for their blessing and their cahooting. They want to be in cahoots with the chief priests and elders. Because they can't invade the fortress Antonia. There's a thousand troops there. They're not going to get past the guards at the gate. So they're going to call. It says, we have bound ourselves. We won't eat or, or drink until we've killed Paul. So give notice to the tribune to bring Paul back here to the council meeting place as though we are going to determine his case more exactly and on his way we will kill him when he comes near. Now the meeting place of the Sanhedrin is about a quarter of a mile away southwest of the temple grounds. So it's not that far. It would be like from here to Camelback maybe, maybe a little closer. Not that big of a walk. But it's not down 40th Street this nice straight and narrow thing. It's windy and it's around. And if you've ever been in Jerusalem, there's no straight streets anywhere. 
Everything is built because of the topography. So you're literally walking downhill in between a lot of places for an ambush. And if the soldiers are unaware, this means these Jewish rabble-rousers, if you want to call them that, are willing to die. They're willing to die to kill Paul. Because if they attack with the Roman soldiers in guard, the soldiers aren't going to let it happen without an argument. And they have weapons. So maybe they're going to try to... Let's say the group of soldiers, there's 12 of them. Well, 40 men can overwhelm 12 others if they're willing to get cut or they're willing to die. And they could pull them off and have others go in and kill Paul. This is, this is very strategic and plotted out. And then verse 16. However, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. You're like, who, what, wait, huh? Paul had a sister? When did that happen? Um, this is Paul's nephew. We have no idea how old he is, other than the fact he is called a young man in this story. But he hears of the threat against his uncle. This is Uncle Paul. <laughs> the guy who keeps falling asleep in the corner at meals. No, but he hasn't been in Jerusalem forever. He's new in the area. This means Paul has had family in Jerusalem. For how long? We have no idea. There's no record. There's no other indication of Paul's family. Could it be, as one fellow theorized, that when Paul was a young man, to be trained under Gamaliel, the entire family moved to Jerusalem from Tarsus and lived there and basically settled there. So his sister has a young man who wants to grow up in the footsteps of Uncle Paul. And he is training under someone on the council which is why he's in the room when he hears of the plot. There's, we're, we're extrapolating here, we're guessing, but it kind of fits, is that this young man is somewhere in the periphery of the council for him to hear of this plot, or he's connected somehow to one of the ruffians who have made their vow. And he entered the barracks in verse 16 to tell Paul this which meant Paul was not under isolation. Family member could walk up and say, hey, how you doing? Let's have lunch. And he tells Paul about it. Paul, verse 17, then calls one of the centurions, not the tribune, one of the centurions, who's over 100 soldiers, and says, take the young man to the tribune. He has something to tell him. So we take him, bring him, and he makes the introduction saying this young man has something to tell you in verse 19. Notice the detail. The tribune took the young man by the hand. This is a man that just a couple days ago wanted to examine Paul with a whip. And you have this tenderness 
of him reaching out saying, it's okay. Because you can imagine this young man is probably a little afraid. He's probably shaking. I even have here, is this young man passed his bar mitzvah, which is why he's called a man, instead of a boy. So he's maybe 12, 15, 16, you know, probably weighed 70 pounds soaking wet. I mean, he's still not a big guy, but he's young enough. And the tribune calms him with the touch. And just tell me what you need to say. And so he told him about it. And the Tribune dismissed the young man saying, don't tell anyone what's going on. And uh, I am not going to continue. We are going to pick up where we left off. Isn't that terrible? Uh, this was getting good. I know, just getting good. They're like, huh, huh, huh. Yeah, that means you all have to be back next week to find the rest of the story. And it's actually interesting because in my studies, I have this entire excursus on who was Felix, an entire excursus on the the trip where they then take Paul and where they ended up. So I have all this other stuff. So I have pre-studied portions of next week's uh, study. So let's pray and end our time. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word in all of its glory, in all of its detail. But we're just, I can just say that I was struck, Lord, that you cared so much for Paul that you visited him in a moment of crisis and gave him comfort, but also to say that he had more for him in his life and that this wasn't it, that there was more to come. And that promise, I imagine, that that promise helped Paul through some dark times and through some difficult times. And we just know that you care for us in our times of need at all times and in every place. In Jesus' name, amen.